morning and welcome to Sunday School here at First Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. I am so glad you are all with us this morning. My name is Ryan Bonfilio. I'm one of the ministers here at First Pres, uh, specifically on the Scholar in Residence. And uh, I am uh, teaching here this morning with Cassie Waits. Uh, Cassie is our Stembler Fellow, a new position in the life of the church. She'll be working with us all this year in a part-time fashion and contributing to uh, teaching and other educational aspects of our ministry. So we're so grateful to have Cassie here with us. And if you've seen Cassie in action before, you know that she's a wonderful teacher. And we are, I am personally excited to have a chance to co-teach with her. This is the fourth and final week of a, of a course that we're calling the Bible in Translation of Brief History. We've been considering over the past four weeks here in August, uh, really how we got our English Bible. Where did it come from? How did, what were the earliest translations? And how did those early translations evolve into the rise of the English Bible during the 14th, 15th, and 16th century? We've done a survey of that history. We've highlighted some of the key moments. Last week, we looked at the KJV and its various revisions. Uh, the KJV is one of the most uh, revered versions. The King James Version is one of the most revered versions. But it's also been highly revised, and for good reason, over time. And here in this final week of the course, we're considering some modern English translations and paraphrases. Over the past 50 years, there's been a great proliferation of new Bible translations. Some of these will be familiar to you, like the NIV, or maybe the ESV, the English Standard Version. Others that we'll talk about today you might not have heard of, like the, uh, the, con uh, the Contemporary English Version, or the Living Bible, and the like. So what we want to do today is Cassie's actually going to start things off, and she's going to give you a framework for understanding how and why these translations differ. That is, like, one of the ideas and perspectives and philosophies uh, that give rise to the various translations uh, that we find in bookstores today. I'm going to come back after Cassie starts this. I'm going to actually give you a little overview of some of the, some of the more interesting and popular uh, modern English translations. And there'll be a really funny one in there, too. I've come across... Um, a millennial translation of Genesis 1. So if you have kids or know folks that might call themselves millennials, I'm going to show you how they translate Genesis 1 a little bit later. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with some considerations of what are some persistent issues in translation that we face, uh, both as readers of Scripture, but also as those who translate. And Cassie will give some final words uh, as takeaway. Course. If you've not been with us in previous weeks, don't despair. Uh, all of these weeks are designed to stand on their own, so you won't be left out. I know that there are some guests and visitors with us today, and we're grateful to have you. Welcome. Uh, you can also, if you're interested in reruns, you can also subscribe to First Press ATL on iTunes or go to our website under Theology Matters and access for free all of the past uh, lectures for this course if you want to catch up. Uh, let me offer just two other quick public service announcements. On your chair are little brochures for Theology Matters. Theology Matters is a program in the life of the church in which we do short four-week courses that deal with various topics in the Bible, uh, theology, uh, Christianity, culture, and so forth. We have three courses lined up for this year. If you open this up, you'll see those three different courses. Uh, one, I'm co-teaching with Jens on uh, Reformation and the hymns. There's another course on... Uh, the Gospels in comparison, thinking about the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and why they matter, and what different theological view they give us of Jesus. And then in the spring, we'll be co-teaching a course with Lydia Foreman, who's our new intern in teaching and theological education on Old Testament wisdom. So these are free courses. We provide great dessert from Highland Bakery. So mark your calendars. We would love to have you come out 
for some of those events. And then finally, uh, the last public service announcement is that if you're interested in Sunday School, if you're interested in Theology Matters, or if you've ever heard a TED Talk, how many of you have ever listened to a TED Talk? A number of you. If you've done that, I want to invite you to come and join us for a new program in the life of the church. It's not that. Um, hang on. It's that. It's called Theoed Talks. This is a speaker series that is designed to do for the Bible, theology, and spirituality what the popular TED series was done for technology, entertainment, and design. That is, bring together some leading thinkers in the church and the academy to give the talk of their lives in 20 minutes or less. By packaging these powerful ideas in bite-sized chunks, we hope to spark conversations that change how we think about the role of faith, not only in our lives, but in our communities. Our, uh, this is something we're actually going to do uh, annually, or maybe even se semi-annually. We're kicking off the, this series this September 24th at 5 p.m. over in Fifield Hall. We would love to have you attend, invite a friend. We've got three fantastic speakers lined up to give these TED-style talks. For more information in the register, please visit www.theoed, that stands for theologicaleducation.com. We would love to have you for that. And you're going to see posters and, and uh, other announcements about that around church. With all of that being said, let us pray and we'll get started. God, we're grateful to be gathered as a community of faith this morning. Wherever we are coming from, whatever is on our plate in life and family and work, we pray that this morning might be a time to worship and reflect together as we think with one another about the history of what we call scripture, of your word and how we access this text in a language that we all know and use. We are grateful that your word has come to us, not only in scripture, but has come to us in flesh through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mold us as a community of faith and help us grow as disciples of Christ. Amen. Cassie. Well, as Ryan mentioned, we discussed the last session of the KJV. And we talked about all of the different divisions that were part of the family of the King James Version. And in that discussion, we learned that there were certain rules that were used in those translations. There were certain interpretive choices that the translators made, and they were guided by a framework. We might call that framework a translation philosophy. Translation philosophies guide every translation that we read in the Bible. And we know that when you have a certain philosophy, if you have a certain rule, and you make a certain choice, you're going to have trade-offs. The King James Version made a choice to render a particular Greek word as church instead of congregation, as William Tyndale had suggested. They made that change because, well, the church was involved in making the King James translation. And it was important to preserve that, uh, that sense of, of hierarchy and, and the sense of the church in scripture. Congregation would have been just as good of a word. And that was a word Tyndale preferred because he preferred to democratize scripture and, and not to have the church hold God so tightly in their hands. So these translators all make decisions. And many times the translators have to choose between two extremes. On one hand, do I stay really closely to the original language, to the Greek and the Hebrew. On the other hand, do I try to make it understandable to my reader? Now, we might remember the revised version. This was the first attempt, the first big attempt, to revise the King James. 
When the revised version was translated, the translators wanted to stay very, very, very closely to the Greek and the Hebrew. In fact, they had found new, there were new discoveries of new Greek manuscripts that were better than the ones used in the King James. And so the translators said, gosh, we've got these great Greek manuscripts. Let's stick with the Greek. And so word by word, sentence by sentence, they kept the words even in the same order because they wanted to match uh, their English in a way that corresponded with the Greek. Well, the result was a revised version, and we mentioned this last week, that was not very popular. And one pastor in England, Charles Spurgeon, said that it was strong in English but weak in Greek. And that is a trade-off that they chose. Do I try to make it accurate, or do I try to make scripture accessible? This is always a trade-off. And so we find that translations often fall along a spectrum. On one hand, we have formal equivalence. A formal equivalence is what it, similar to what we saw with the KJV and the Revised Version and all of those versions after it. Formal equivalence tries to match word for word. It tries to match grammatical structure to grammatical structure. So if the Hebrew has an infinitive, the English has an infinitive. If the Hebrew has a present tense verb, the English has a present tense verb. And so on for the Greek. That's an equivalent translation that is equivalent in its form. And that's why it's called formal. On the other end, we have a functional equivalent. Now, functional equivalence would be a translation that tries to, to capture a thought-by-thought -thought, uh, match with the original language. So if in the original language you had a, a sentence that tried to convey a certain meaning, in the English you would try to convey the same meaning, even if you left a few words out or maybe added a few words in. Now, in some cases, formal and functional equivalence yield similar results. Uh, you can imagine if you wanted to say in English, I am hungry, and you wanted to then translate that into French, you would have a word for I am hungry. And the formal equivalence and the functional equivalence would match because people in France know what it means to be hungry. It means the same thing. It means I need food. But if you wanted to say, I'm so hungry I can eat a horse, <laughs> that might not translate in French. And they might wonder, what kind of person are you that uh, you want to go out and eat a horse? In many languages, uh, having these nuances, they might be metaphors, it might just be some kind of figure of speech, and we know they often don't translate. I worked for a man whose uh, first language was not English, and in three years of working for him, he never once made a decision. Because in his home language, you don't make decisions, you take decisions. And even though he had been in America for many years and he knew English well, he consistently would say, I'll think about that and take a decision tomorrow. And we, we knew what he meant, but it didn't quite translate. And so you see the difference between a functional difference and a functional one. The functional one is just a little bit more clear and natural in the new the, the language that the reader is using. So perhaps we could practice a little bit with this. Um, in Exodus 32:19, we read this passage, Moses' anger burned. And that's a formal equivalent to the Hebrew. But when we say that his anger burned, do you think it means Moses was a little angry, a bit angry, or a lot angry? 
Now, in this, in Song of Solomon, we have a dialogue between a man and a woman who are in love. And in this case, he's trying to compliment her. <laughs> oh, hold your laughter because you're going to see what he says. Um, he's trying to compliment her. So the formal equivalent, he says, your neck is like the Tower of David, build it for an armory. And all the ladies in the room just did not swoon at that. <laughs> not at all. If my husband told me this, I would think, what are you even talking about? Maybe we know why they never got together in Song of Solomon. <laughs> uh, because that's his line. He needs a better one. So that's the formal equivalent. The Tower of David built it for an armory. And in our modern uh, language and in the way that we, we interact with one another, that does not sound very romantic. The functional equivalent tries to make this <coughs> make a little more sense to us. Your neck is like is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Still it's a tower. But I hear jewelry in here. We also have idioms, uh, culturally specific ways of speaking. And an idiom, it could even be something like we, we, make, we make decisions instead of taking decisions. That could be just a way that we speak, a way that we would put those words together. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus uh, has been preaching all day. There are thousands of people, around 5,000 people, uh, give or take some women and children, that, that have been listening to him, and at the end of the day, they're hungry. The disciples come, and they say, uh, these people need food. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, well, Jesus, he blank, you feed them. Now, what word would you put in that blank? He says, he says, all right, that was a softball. Okay. So the formal equivalent of this, you'll be surprised actually, the formal equivalent is he answered and said. And the reason that that's the formal equivalent is because that's how the Greek writes it. In Greek, there is an idiom that's used over and over ad nauseum in the New Testament. When somebody is speaking uh, to answer a question, they answer and say. They don't just answer, they don't just say. They don't respond, they don't reply. We can think of a lot of words that could go there. But he answered and said as the formal equivalent. Now, functional equivalent, Jesus answered. This is a really small change. And at this point, you're thinking, well, who cares? I'll just go out and get a functional equivalent because it's clearer, it's more natural. It doesn't make a huge difference in a lot of cases. It actually makes it easier for me to read. But there are times that a functional equivalence falls short. And that is when we get to illusions. Illusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, not what David Copperfield does on the stage. An illusion is an indirect reference. Uh, it, could, it could be like a, it could even describe maybe a motif where there's a theme that's running throughout uh, either a, a book, a passage, or even across several books of the Bible. And there are times when some one book will reference another book. And that illusion is what makes the connection. Now, if you have a formal equivalent, you're sticking very closely to the Hebrew and Greek, and so you're likely to pick the word here, and the same word will show up over there. But if you're using a functional equivalent, it's possible 
for the proliferation of the many, many, many new English translations of the Bible that have arisen in the past half century. Uh, the time doesn't permit us to look at all of them, uh, but what I want to begin with is to highlight uh, one of the points of commonality between all of those translations, and that is, it's to put the Bible in plain, simple, everyday, common English. The English that you and I would use in a conversation, they want to mirror that language in relaying the biblical stories. That's what's true of all of those new translations, more or less. Now, what drives that decision to want to put the Bible in plain, simple, everyday English? Well, I want to highlight two reasons, one theological and one practical. From the theological side, the impulse to put the Bible into everyday English might be understood as an outgrowth of the reform principle sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone. One of the pillars of hallmarks of Reformation thought is that the Bible should lead the way as a chief authority in matters of faith and practice. But in order for the Bible to lead the way in such matters, in order for us to believe in scripture alone, the Bible must be read by all. And in order for the Bible to, read, to be read by all, it must be in a language that all can use, thus everyday language. Um, you might think of an analogy of this as going back to the Greek New Testament. In the first week of this class, I believe we talked about how the Greek of the Septuagint and the New Testament was not the Greek of Homer or Aeneid. It was not the Greek of the high literature of the Hellenistic culture. Rather, the Greek we find in the New Testament was the Greek of the marketplace the Greek of the, of the gymnasium, the Greek of everyday life. The New Testament itself was written in everyday language for the very reason why translators today are putting the English Bible into everyday English. That is to make it accessible. This is the word for the people, not just for the priests, not just for the scholars, not just for the elite. It's the word for the 99%, not the 1%. So that's one of the reasons, that's the theological impulse to, to make these new translations that put the Bible in everyday English. But there's another reason, a more practical or maybe even profane reason. That is, there is a realization that publishing the Bible is big, big business. To popularize is to monetize. And this has not been lost on many a Bible publisher. In the midst of the publishing crisis, which we are still a part of, Bible sales are booming. In 2007, 25 million Bibles were sold in the U.S., producing a revenue of $770 million. In 2008, at the height of the economic crisis, when book sales were in free fall, Bible sales actually increased by 7% to $823 million. So catch this. The print industry is more or less dead. Apologies to any of those of you who might be in that industry. The print industry is in, in a free fall, and Bible sales keep rising. They keep rising even in a time when many people have declared the church to be dead. The average Christian household in America, how many Bibles do you think the average Christian household in America owns? Two, four, five, nine. The answer is nine. And the average Christian household buys a new Bible once a year. Bible business is big business. The, uh, the Bible actually, some of you know this, the Bible in fact is the best-selling book not only of all time, but it's still the best-selling book every week. It's just that the New York Times no longer lists it. But there's an asterisk in New York Times bestsellers. It's always the Bible, and then what's first is really the second bestseller at any given time. Publishers know this. Put simply, Bible publishing is lucrative, 
This is evident in the fact that the two biggest Bible publishers in the U.S. are owned by larger non-Christian media conglomerates, including uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Uh, they own the biggest Bible publisher in the U.S. Um, Thomas Nelson publishes more than 300 different Bibles and controls about 20% of, of the Bible market in the U.S. It was purchased in 2006 by a private equity firm, Intermedia Partners, in a deal worth half a billion dollars. So there's some reason that we need new Bible translations, because Bible translations lead to sales. Now, one of the things I want to do quickly is just shed a spotlight on some of the more important or more interesting of these common English versions. Some of these you'll have heard about, no doubt. Others might be a little bit uh, less familiar. The first one I su suspect is in this latter category. It's known as the 20th Century New Testament. Um, it's already out of date. Um, but this was actually written in the early 1900s. This was really one of the first English Bible attempts to do this functional equivalency that Cassie so nicely described earlier. It was produced not by linguists or textual experts, but by pastors and lay people. They were united by their desire to convey the word of God in plain English, and in more than one passage, the translators clarified the meaning of the text in helpful ways. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Uh, Matthew 10, 8. Uh, I'm going to give you the KJV, then I'll show you how they made an adjustment. So the KJV, King James Version, Matthew 10, 8, says, Freely ye receive, freely give. The question is, what does freely mean in this context? We can use freely in some different ways. Generously. Generously. That's the correct answer. Um, well, that's one answer, I should say. There, there might be different views of this. Um, I, I mean, I, that, that was bad. I really should have, I should have led differently on that interaction. Can we get this uh, in and out of the so, right, so it could be generously, and that's a common understanding. It's not correct. It's uh, a common understanding. Uh, but what how else could freely mean? Without, without hesitation. Without hesitation. Without compulsion. Without compulsion or without cost, right? This KJV leaves it somewhat ambiguous, and maybe that's the beauty of it because we have space for these multiple translations. Uh, but the, uh, the TCNT clarifies what the context actually implies. You've received free of cost, therefore give free of cost. No doubt generosity is there and implied, but the specific <laughs> word in Greek actually means free of cost, not generously. So this is a case where there's some helpful clarification. Another example is uh, Matthew 26, 27. The KGB says, drink ye all of it. This is from the Last Supper. Um, what's confusing about this verse? Drink ye all of it. Is it southern? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Drink y'all it, <laughs> or drink you all of it. What does the all refer to? Is it all y'all drink it, or is it you just drink all of it? Well, maybe in the south it's all good. Maybe it's all y'all drink all of it, y'all. <laughs> in context, though, in the Greek, uh, it, it's, it's actually uh, the refers to the people, not to the drink. So take a sip, all y'all. Don't, don't drown it. Or drown it. So drink from it, all of you, is a, is a helpful clarification. Another place is Philippians 4.6. It 
be careful for nothing. Uh, now, depending how you read this, it might uh, seem to recommend indifference towards the future, but really uh, the, the, this uh, New Century Version uh, clarifies, do not be anxious about anything. And that translation is probably much more familiar to you, for it survives in many English translations today. So you can tell that many of these updates help to clarify the meaning of the text, make it more readable and understandable. Uh, similar impulses are evident in what is known as the Living Bible, uh, uh, which is very commonly known through a particular version called the Way. How many of you seen, have seen something of this, or maybe had it back in the 70s? 70s? Maybe I don't want to date some of you, but uh, early 70s, this came out in 1972. Um, it was done in partnership with the evangelical campus ministry called Youth for Christ, and tried explicitly to appeal to an early 70s popular youth culture. The cover, as you can see, looks more like a Doobie Brothers album than most Bibles. Um, note that the word Bible itself, in fact, is quite small uh, in terms of its uh, marketing here. What you get is the way, and then the Bible is just kind of a little uh, subtitle there. Uh, in it, you'll find not only an easy-to-read translation, but tons of pictures, uh, smiling people, hanging out, playing guitars, and so on. And so forth. Uh, the translation itself is hugely uh, a, a paraphrase based on the American Standard Version. I just said, as a little aside, uh, a paraphrase in comparison to a translation. Does anyone know the difference? Paraphrase versus translation? No reference to the original text. That's exactly right, Bruce. So the big difference, you might think of a paraphrase just as a very loose <coughs> translation, and in fact, that's true. But the technical difference is when you write a paraphrase, the thing you make it off of is not the original languages. You start with another English translation and you reword that into English. This actually is the case with the message. Some of you might know Eugene Peterson's The Message. Technically, that's a paraphrase, because although Peterson, to my knowledge, knows Greek and Hebrew, his basis is an English translation, and he makes another English translation off of an English. Technically, that's a paraphrase, and technically, that's what we find in the Living Bible. This was hugely popular. It was endorsed by Billy Graham, who ordered uh, about 500,000 of them to offer to his TV audiences. By 1996, over 40 million copies had been sold, 6.4 million of this particular version with the Doobie Brothers cover. Um, uh, now, I said earlier that remember that to popularize is to monetize. That's not actually the case here. The publishers of this uh, version, the Living Bible, Tyndale House, donated all proceeds of those 40 million copies sold to Christian missions. So that's actually a case where the, the, bottom line, the, the money is at bottom line was not the driving factor. Give you a flavor of the Living Bible. Here's Psalm 23.1, which many of you know from the KJV or NRSV. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. He lets me rest in the meadow grass and leads me beside the quiet streams. He restores my failing health. He helps me do what honors him the most. You can tell it has a different kind of more casual, informal flavor to it. And yet I think in many ways it captures the, the tone and spirit of the text. Where they are out trying to persecute people of the way. That was mm. one of the first ways that Christians were identified. That's where they got their, their title, the way. Good, good. Yeah. Very, very savvy in kind of what they're doing here. They really wanted to get this Bible into the hands of youth. And to do that, they tried to accommodate the look and feel of it. Uh, another example, which is quite uh, popular of the same vein, uh, is the New International Version. Many of you know the NIV. I, I, my first exposure to Christianity was with the NIV. Uh, it was published in 19, 
1978. The origins um, was that it was from conservative and evangelical. It was a conservative and evangelical reaction against the revised standard version that somehow was perceived to be too liberal. Um, as it, it was an enormous undertaking. A team of 100 translators came together for this project from all over the world. It took a span of 10 years to put together. It was a project that cost $80 million uh, by the end of it. That, that money was raised by Zondervan Bible publishers who were contracted to be the sole publisher in America. It's one of the most popular Bible translations still to this day, having sold over 400 million, 400 million have been sold. Uh, surveys revealed that 19% of American Christians have and use the NIV. That's staggering, considering how many English versions of the Bible are out there. The thread that binds the translations is their emphasis on, quote, the full authority and infallibility of Scripture. And in my estimation, this is an admirable view, however, all for two caveats. The translators of the RSV, which they so strongly rejected, also had a high view of the authority of Scripture. So they didn't actually differ all that much in terms of their doctrine. Second, even though the NIV believes in the infallibility of Scripture, in order to uphold that doctrine, they occasionally translate in ways that try to smooth out what are actually problems and inconsistencies in the original Greek and Hebrew. And I'll just give you a flavor for this. Matthew 13, 32, um, Jesus says in this parable of the mustard seed, though it, the mustard seed, is the smallest of all the seeds. That's what we find in the NRSV, and that's very true to the Greek. What's the problem with the statement? The mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds anywhere, including in Israel Palestine. So technically, what Jesus has said here is incorrect. Now this bothered the translators of the NIV because they believed in the infallibility of Scripture. So what do they do? They change the translation. So in the NIV you read, though it the mustard seed is the smallest of your seeds. That is, Dan has four different seeds and the mustard seed happens to be the smallest of them. Well, maybe. It's just not what the text says. So despite its kind of view of the, the infallibility of scripture, it forces them to make some changes in the translation. Another example actually comes from Genesis 2.8. Uh, this is the second creation account. Adam has just been created, and the very next line is, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Now this bothered the NAV translators because in the first creation account, what comes first? The land or the plants? And the trees or the people? Well, the trans or the trees come first in the first creation account. And the NIV authors are reading Genesis 1 and 2 not as two parallel creation stories, but as one continuous narrative. And so they said, well, this doesn't make sense. If Adam is created, how could then the garden be planted? They had to change the tense of the verbs to iron out the problem. So in NIV we find, now the Lord God had planted. That is, this is something he had done long before Adam was created. That's not what the text says, but that's how the NIV smooths out these potential problems to the infallibility of Scripture. Uh, I want to skip uh, this next one, the contemporary English version. I want to give you just like a snapshot of one I found recently, uh, this translation of Genesis 1 from the Millennial Bible. This is kind of the, 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 Bible, the language comes from the way millennials speak, this is very uh, stereotypical, I admit, but it's really funny. Uh, so I'm going to share with you uh, some of this. So this is Genesis 1 in a millennial translation. So if you have kids of that age, or know a people that age, uh, you might hear words like this. I'm going to give you a sampling. 
Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hashtag creation goals. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag earth is they. I have to admit, I had to use a dictionary to look up some of these words. They is something that you refer to a, a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I think it means beyond all, beyond all, uh, beyond all else or something like that. Or before all else or something like that. Um, Verse 2, now the earth was formless and basic, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was low-key hovering. <laughs> Verse 5, God called the light day, then threw some shade, and called the night, and there was evening, there was morning, the first day, hashtag, blessed day. <laughs> Verse 13, then there was evening, and there was morning, the third day, and God added it to his Instagram story. <laughs> 28, uh, this is near the end after the creation of Adam and Eve. God blessed his fam and shouted, YOLO, which means you only live once, um, and then spilled the tea, which is a reference to gossiping, then spilled the tea about life on earth. 29, God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with, with seed in it. They will be yours for food. That's pretty straightforward. But don't buy too much avocado toast, or we will never be able to afford a house. And then finally, God saw all that he had made, and he literally couldn't even. And there was evening, and there was morning, and God was like, for heaven's sake, this place is cray, I'm out, and he requested a mover. Gender neutral language by and large. 
Uh, NAV says, for we maintain that a man, anthropos in Greek, is justified by faith. Paul's intention here is not to say that only biological males are justified by faith. There's some other deal for biological females. That's not Paul's case at all in context. Neither is it the case that the Greek word anthropos only means male. In fact, sorry, that's hard to read. In Greek, anthropos usually means person or human, not biological male. In fact, Greek has other words to mean biological male. Uh, male. Anair, and there's another, you guys might know. What is it? Good for, for woman, right? Um, so they have language to say man as in biological male and woman as in biological female. They don't use that here. So this is actually not an issue of political correctness. This actually gets A, at the heart of what Paul's trying to say, and B, it's actually more accurate in terms of what anthropos means in the Greek. Uh, this, very similar things happen with the word Adam, uh, Adam in the Hebrew. The ESV, which is another that doesn't often use gender-neutral language, in Genesis 6-7 it says, I will blot out man, Adam, whom I have created. This is the flood story. The intention of this narrative is not to say that God is going to save all the women and blot out all the men, right? The intention here, that you might, you might argue if that's a good strategy. Uh, I'll leave that to you. Uh, but, but the case is that no, all humanity is going to be blotted out from the flood. Okay? And again, so context demands a different translation, but also the word Adam in Hebrew, though it can be translated as a personal name like Adam, it can also mean humanity. In fact, more commonly, it means human being or humanity. So here, the NRSV, I think, is a better translation, not because it's politically correct, but because it's more accurate <coughs> to what the underlying Hebrew actually <coughs> says. Um, I want to get this back to, to Cassie. I want to uh, note one last thing. Um, th there are other cases in which gender neutrality uh, is an issue. Uh, sons of Israel, brothers in Christ, forefathers, all of these imply an inclusive sense of people. Um, there's a persistent question then, what then to do about language about God? Only one English translation that I know of called the Inclusive Bible actually tries to replace uh, masculine language for God uniformly and extensively with gender neutral language. I think this is a difficult issue, I have to say. I don't have a great solution to it. I think always referring to God by neutral pronouns like God's self can be crazy, um, though I think it's theologically true that God is beyond gender. God is neither male nor female. God is pure spirit. So I have a, I have a deep sympathy for both sides of the issue. Uh, on this, and I don't, I, I myself don't have a solution uh, to what actually the best practice is, but it, it's a somewhat of a separate issue to, the, to describing uh, in the other side what we did. I think I've taken up too much time, but I'm going to pass it to Cassie to finish us off, uh, and, and, um, and there's a short commute to the service, uh, so don't despair, you won't be late for that. I might be late for that, we could be a problem. Got to speak through a couple there. Sorry. Once again, we prepared for about a ninety-minute lesson. <laughs> so today we end our translation journey, and we hope, though, that this isn't the end of your journey and study of biblical translation. But we hope we've inspired you to consider new and different translations, and that you will treat with uh, generosity and charity the careful and faithful work of translators over the centuries. As we look back. We might have a few takeaways. First, I want to say the translation process is complicated. 
Uh, it's not just a matter of substituting one word for another word, but every translation is informed by and in conversation with other translations and with the cultural and political environment at the time. And so there are always interpretive choices being made. And because of that, every translation is inexact. There is no perfect translation because no one language can be perfectly mirrored in another language. But there are better and worse translations. And we hope that you've learned throughout this course that sources matter. Which Greek, which Hebrew are you using? Because that will make a difference in the translation that you have. And the, and the translations themselves are sometimes subject to more or less political pressure. Uh, we saw the King James Version was authorized commissioned by King James. And so he had some interest in having the interpretive choices go a certain direction. Um, this, in, some, in some translations, the political pressure is less, in some it's more. In some translations, we just saw the inclusive Bible, there's a cultural pressure around that one, uh, maybe even theological pressure around how, how should we best render this uh, to help people best understand God's word in their lives. And so I hope that you will be encouraged to remain open to good translations, to be careful in which translations you're using, understand where they're coming from, but also understand that no translation is perfect. And sometimes in our study, it really takes a, a variety of good translations to get a full appreciation and understanding of God's word in our lives today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.